0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with my co-conspirator, Daniel Larison as we navigate world events and The Blob in Washington, D.C. In the second segment, we will be welcoming Adam Weinstein today. He is a colleague as well as an Afghanistan war veteran, and we're going to talk to him about the U.S. troop presence in Iraq and Syria and how that might be impacted by today's events in Israel and Gaza. So looking forward to that. But in the meantime, Dan, you know, there's um, no other issue today that is dominating the headlines uh, than uh, Israel and Gaza. And as we are recording today, there has not yet been a ground invasion of Gaza, but but Israel is continuing to pummel the Strip, and it has resulted in unbelievable uh, catastrophic humanitarian crisis there. The last I looked, some, I think, two-thirds of the health facilities in Gaza were uh, shut down because of the bombings. Um, There had been upwards of 5,000 people killed as of this recording. And um, the suffering is just um, on on such a measure that they have not seen in at least 16 years there or worse. So what we wanted to talk about today, though, was international reaction. And I know the Biden administration has been walking a fine line between its full-throated support... Of Israel and its right to defend itself, as well as cautioning against exacerbating the humanitarian situation on the ground. But internationally, particularly in the global south, the voices have been much more critical of Israel as it continues this bombing campaign, as well as readying for a ground invasion and talking about the disproportionate measures that Israel is taking and pointing out uh, the, what seems to be a hypocritical stance by the US uh, as it does not, um, you know, vocally criticize Israel's bombing of civilian targets as much as they did for the last two years uh, during the Ukraine war, as well as the, the occupation. So I, you know, before the show, I I went through the the headlines and collecting some of the news coming out of the the Global South. Uh, President Joko Widodo of Indonesia, which is the world's most populous Muslim nation and does not recognize Israel, has condemned the, quote, ongoing injustices against the Palestinian people. Uh, The Gaza war will only worsen the global situation, he said, threatening higher oil prices after Ukraine war has already slowed wheat exports um president lula of brazil has criticized us weapon supplies to ukraine um and has all, was also on the forefront of the un resolution last week uh that failed uh because the united states was the one veto um and has veto power and that resolution uh basically had con, um had called for a pause uh for humanitarian uh, reasons and also condemned Hamas's actions but it wasn't strident enough uh, it did not uh, recognize Israel's right to, to defend itself so the US uh, had um vetoed it um he said uh or his uh, ambassador Brazil's ambassador to the United Nations, Sergio Franca Denise, expressed frustration over the situation, saying hundreds of thousands of civilians in Gaza cannot wait any longer. They've actually waited far too long. Um, Also, double standard, uh, accusations of double standards coming from um, uh, President Abdel Fattah al Sisi of Egypt and King Abdullah of Jordan. Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, The emir of Qatar said this morning, uh, being Tuesday, uh, at an address that uh, we are saying enough is enough, it is untenable for Israel to be given any unconditional green light and free license to kill, nor is it tenable to continue ignoring the reality of occupation, siege, and settlement. So, Dan, um, there is definitely a difference between how the global south and non-Western leaders are viewing the situation. And the United States and its partners in UK and even France. Um, you know, this do you see this divide um getting uh, this chasm becoming bigger and bigger as, as time wears on in this war?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, Kelly. I, I think it, it will it will definitely keep getting bigger uh because the I mean especially for the US, because the US position is essentially to let the Israeli government do what it likes, uh, and and you know maybe pay lip service to humanitarian concerns on the margins, but but basically do nothing to pressure them to to scale back what they're trying to do to or to or to lift the siege that they have in place right now. Um, the the story that you were quoting from from the New York Times uh, that came out yesterday uh, also included a quote from King Abdullah of Jordan. Uh, where he said, anywhere else attacking civilian infrastructure and deliberately starving an entire population of food, water, basic necessities would be condemned, accountability would be enforced. International law loses all value if it is implemented selectively. And that, that gets at the, the heart of the matter. That the, the U.S. and its allies in Europe will uh, talk very uh, grandly about the importance of international law, the U.N. Charter, uh, respecting the rules and, and, and upholding the rules-based order uh, that is supposedly uh, our our uh, our creation, right? The, the, the thing that we're supposed to have created and made uh, the world safe thereby. Um, they, they can see very clearly that we don't actually adhere to the rules. We don't respect the rules when one of the states that we consider to be on our side, that we consider to be one of us, is doing the violations. And so the, the chasm is bound to get larger as the war goes on, as Israeli violations uh, grow in number and in severity. And, uh, and you know, unfortunately, the, the non-Western governments uh, around the world have, have, have the better of the argument. They're the ones that are saying we ought to be paying attention to these rules consistently, that we ought to be applying them consistently. Uh, and, and of course, we don't um and we don't apply them to ourselves either um which i mean that of course that was the original problem in making the appeal to these countries over Mm -hmm. the war in ukraine uh because many of the governments that supported ukraine have engaged in their own wars of aggression not that long before um and so there's there's clear recognition on the part of these governments that that we're not serious when we talk about these things that we say these things only when it's convenient for us Mm -hmm. and when uh when it becomes difficult, when it becomes uh, a challenge to actually uphold those rules, we toss them out the window, and and choose expedience instead. And so they're they're bound to lose uh, whatever respect they may have had for these uh, for Western governments when they when they talk about these things. Uh, there was a story in the Financial Times last week, uh, quoting a senior G seven diplomat saying, uh, "We have definitely lost the battle in the global south." He said, "Forget about rules. Forget about world order. They won't ever listen to us again." And I mean, the only thing I think is wrong about that is that they weren't really listening to Western governments to begin with. Um, but but they definitely won't listen to them now because they they've shown the Western governments have shown so clearly that they aren't serious when they talk about upholding international law and respecting it. Uh, and and of course, Israel has been one of the the big glaring exceptions uh in terms of u s foreign policy for a very long time uh, for for the last half century, when it comes uh, to either turning a blind eye to or or even in, enabling uh occupation of Palestinian territory um, and so that's that's always been a liability for the u s and now it's becoming uh, a really uh, a really damaging one, I think, and it's one that's just going to keep getting worse as we go. And unfortunately, with, with the administration's approach, tying us ever more closely to Israel makes it very hard to 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 avoid that liability really coming back to bite us.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. What I find very interesting is the are the monarchies, the despots in the Middle East who are getting very nervous about not only their association with us but about the Abraham accords for which they had either signed or are moving had been moving toward before this exploded uh, in, in early October so for example like i mentioned al sisi you know sticking his chest out and talking about hypocritical statements or double standards that the united states makes uh, mohammed bin salman crown prince of saudi arabia let uh, Blinken, I believe, wait for 40, 45 minutes before he would meet with him last week. And everybody was crowing about how the United States had lost its influence with uh, bin Salman and that somehow we we were the ones that, you know, we had performed this sort of, sup, you know, we, we had been... Uh, prostrating ourselves before Saudi Arabia in the months and leading up to this to try to get them to sign this normalization deal with Israel. And this was sort of the apex of that moment where Blinken is sitting there waiting in a waiting room to see MBS. And so Saudi Arabia is rethinking its position on, on Israel now. Um, King Abdullah and Jordan, though Jordan has always been uh, a a bit better on the Palestinian issue uh, than UAE or Saudi Arabia. But it does seem as though these despots were ready to throw the Palestinians under the bus and sign all sorts of agreements with the United States and Israel, mostly because they were getting trade and travel and To a certain extent with the United States, they were getting more security agreements, more weapons. So they were happy to do it. And then they realized uh, after Israel decided to to, uh, disproportionately respond to the Hamas attacks by killing upwards of several thousand Palestinians afterwards, now they're rethinking because they know they're sitting on their own powder keg Because the Arab Street never was in favor of these Abraham Accords. The Arab Street does support the Palestinians, and if not as two-state solution, but some right uh, to a sovereign state. And for years, they had been subjugating those interests for their own despotic interests, so I know in the course of our conversation, we often lump all these non-Western leaders together, but they, they have their own sins that they have to answer for. You know, Bron- uh, Bronco uh, Marchitek had a great piece on responsible statecraft saying, you know, not only were the Abraham Accords not creating peace across the Middle East, but they, they might have actually helped to, to light the match. Uh, for the events that are occurring because there had been such festering anger about the Palestinians' uh, cause being swept under the rug by these uh, monarchies for so long over the course of the year and a half. And they witnessed, you know, Biden and MBS about to to make an agreement in exchange for this uh, Israeli Normalization and it just it just kicked things off and 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 spiraled out of control. So um, there's just a, a lot to unpack here, but I don't think and maybe you'll agree with me or not. You know, I think the root causes of this problem are not going to be resolved anytime soon, and I don't even know if there's any efforts to do that. But I do. I also think that the 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 political geopolitical dynamics of the Middle East have been a bit overturned, and I don't know if we're going to be able to go back to say August 2023, you know, much less you know 2022 or 2021. I think there's there have been some rudimentary changes made in our relationships and the relationships with each other, and um, I I'm not, I'm not sure where that goes.
1: Right. And I, I think what, what it does show above all is that the, the sort of bankruptcy of the Biden administration approach, which was, uh, what, you know, what, uh, Britt Merger called the back to basics approach, which is basically to, to tighten connections to all existing clients, to, to strengthen those relationships and to throw more and more, uh, favors at all of them, uh, to indulge them as much as possible, uh, in an attempt to, to try to, uh, forge this this anti-iranian coalition and and to try to to tighten relationships among the various clients with each other and and clearly that's that hasn't uh, taken hold it, it isn't going to work it can't work because the it, you can't simply ignore the occupation you can't simply ignore the Palestinians in perpetuity it, I think a lot of people in Washington began to think that they they could get away with ignoring the problem for a while because other regional developments had, in some senses, distracted other actors for a long time. The, the war in Syria, uh, various protest movements connected with the Arab Spring, and so on. Uh, and so it became fashionable in Washington to say that people don't care about Palestine the way that they used to. And and we've we've seen in just the last month uh, that's completely wrong. And that and that. Basic Misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the region has blown up in the face of our government and all of its partners uh, in a huge way. And so there there will be no back to basics or or if, if Biden insists on continuing with the back to basics approach, he will fail.
0: Welcome to the show today, Adam Weinstein. Adam Weinstein is a colleague of mine at the Quincy Institute. He's a deputy director of the Middle East program at the Institute. His research focuses on security and rule of law in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. He is also a non-resident fellow at Tadlab, a think tank and advisory firm based in Islamabad, and regularly travels throughout Pakistan. Adam's analysis has been featured in the Washington Post, Guardian, foreign policy, war on the rocks, lawfare, and the national interest, and he is also an Afghanistan war veteran. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Adam.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited to to pick your brain on this. We talked a bunch in the first segment about some of the political, international dynamics of the Israel-Gaza war. I am also interested, we're both interested in the prospects for a wider war spilling out of Israel-Gaza, specifically the troops that we have stationed in Iraq and in Syria presently. And I believe, and you can correct me, I think it's like 2,000 in Iraq and 900 in Syria
2: yeah, that's uh, exactly right.
0: Okay, and of the la- and in the last several days, we've had reports about the uh, true our troops stationed at bases both in Syria and Iraq being uh, attacked by uh, drones and rockets. We don't have a confirmation on who is behind those uh, attacks, which many had been thwarted uh, by missile defense systems on those bases. But the U.S. uh, Defense Department has come out and blamed the uh, Iranian-backed militias in the region and said that they will be standing firm and will uh, respond if they have to. So I was just wondering your thoughts as an analyst of the region, but also a U.S. military veteran, how concerned you are for our troops in the region today?
2: I'm I'm somewhat concerned. I think uh, the Iran-aligned militias uh, in Iraq and and, and Syria definitely have a motivation to attack bases, and if things escalate, they'll have more of a motivation. We have to remember that the ground invasion hasn't even begun yet, and uh, the images that are going to come out of a ground invasion are going to... escalate uh elevate emotions and escalate the conflict at the same time and so i think we will see these militias uh, trying to assert themselves i think there's another risk that people are talking about a little bit less but the risk just to u.s citizens in the region who might not be in the military uh the u.s state department has advised all u.s citizens to leave lebanon but we know that that's not going to happen because there's so many u.s citizens there there's journalists there's students at the american university of uh Beirut, there's uh, Lebanese Americans. Uh, and um, I- I- if there were to be a, confrontra- a confrontation between Hezbollah and Israel, and especially if it included the US in some way, those citizens uh, could become targets. We also have embassies and huge embassies in the region, in Amman, uh, in Beirut, that are potentially soft targets. And we can imagine a situation where those embassies get stormed. I'm sure that the embassies have taken precautions, but uh, it's not just the U.S. troops that would be put in danger. It's softer targets that could be put in danger. And then we can quickly see how things would unravel because the Biden administration would feel a need to respond. And and uh, there you have it.
0: You know, I, we've been hearing also about assets being moved into the region. So we know we have two carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean uh, warships have actually been thwarting, uh, missile attacks, which they say are coming out of Yemen, uh, missiles that are apparently headed, were headed for Israel. That happened last week. I know that, uh, troops have been pre-deployed or like they've been put on pre-deployment orders. And I think most recently, uh, I know this is being recorded on Tuesday, but on Monday, uh, we heard about, uh, THAAD and Patriot missile systems being moved in the region. Um, are, is this? Do you see this as a warning to Iran, uh, like a, a matter of deterrence, or do you see this as something a little bit more urgent that uh, there there might be something afoot? I mean, what are your thoughts when you hear about all of these assets being moved to the region? Well,
2: in terms of uh, the carrier groups, I mean. I- I can understand that in the sense that there's an evacuation taking place of U.S. citizens from Israel and potentially Lebanon. And so as an insurance policy, that that somewhat makes sense to me. But when I when I hear this, you know, reports of uh, these these uh, weapon systems that are, are really for conventional war, I think the the Biden administration sees it as deterrence. Now, um I, I guess I'd argue once you have to – well, I guess my concern would be once you have to deploy, you've begun to lose the battle of deterrence, I think, in which uh, things are escalating and you've moved past the posture of deter, deterrence towards escalation. Um, it might have a deterrent effect. It's anyone's guess. The problem is that if the deterrent uh, effect is, is, um, is, is sort of married to this uh, conflict in, in Gaza that is unpredictable – um, and doesn't seem to have an off ramp, it's unclear how how long this deterrent effect can really last and how effective it will be. So that's the that's the concern. Um, and as others have pointed out, you, you have to have uh, there's just two sides to this conflict and you have to, you know, encourage both sides to de-escalate. Now, it could be that the Biden administration uh, thinks that if it provides public support for Israel and, and, and the Netanyahu government, Uh, that it uh, will um, somehow be able to be harsher with them behind closed doors. I just, I don't know if that's what's going on. Uh, uh, I've heard conflicting reports um, about why the ground invasion hasn't happened. Some people say it hasn't happened because there's plans, you know, there's a delay because folks want plans uh, in place in case there's a wider regional conflict. Some folks have said the delay is, is that the Biden administration is actually trying to buy time with Netanyahu and his war cabinet. Um, so I, I, I just don't know uh, what the reality is. And I don't think anyone knows. Uh, uh, but, but, but what we know in terms of the facts on the ground is that there's a war footing, there's a war posture. Uh, the United States is making moves that would suggest it's preparing for a regional war, even if it doesn't want it to happen. And of course, that's concerning.
1: Right well absolutely and thanks Adam, for coming on the show uh, what we've seen reports uh, in in just the last week uh, the Pentagon is warning that there may be many more attacks on u s forces in the region beyond the ones that have already happened in Iraq and Syria in the event that Israel does go in with with the ground invasion uh, and and we 've seen in just the last couple of days uh, as you were mentioning uh, suggestions that the u s is pressing Israel to delay the invasion, not to stop it but to to prepare its own forces in the event that there is escalation following that. Uh, and so I guess, and, and I know you just said w- no one can really know for sure what the, what the real story is or, or what's going to happen, but but how likely do you think it is that the U.S. will be directly engaged in a new Middle Eastern war before the end of the year?
2: I mean, I, well, I've, gosh, the prediction business is so difficult. I'd still say it's it's more likely not than it will be, but what kind of percentages do you want to deal with? I mean, if I said there's a 20 percent chance that we're involved in a regional war, well, that's a devastating percentage. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't leave your house if you thought there was a 20 percent chance that you were going to be uh, physically assaulted. So um, or at least many people wouldn't. So I think the percentage, you know, I won't assign an exact percentage. If I was a betting person, I'd still I'd still say more likely not than yes. But the percentage has reached a concerning threshold and uh it's a threshold that whether we say it's ten percent or twenty percent or whatever these percentage are, it's a percentage that people shouldn't be comfortable with
1: i well yeah definitely and but one of the things that that I think should be concerning to Americans is that u s forces are being put in this position with with really without much in the way of of congressional debate or or public debate It's simply taken for granted that we're going to move these forces into the region. Uh, and, and we're going to expose them potentially to, to being engaged in hostilities without anyone having considered the, the implications of that. So how, how can we have any sort of democratic accountability for this policy when there's not even uh, an opportunity to, to debate it beforehand?
2: Well, I think what's more concerning than the the maneuvers we see, because look, presidents move around naval assets, and that's always been the case. But the U.S. troop presence in Syria and Iraq has kept the pilot light on, and and that's that's I think what's even more concerning, and that's what should have been debated long ago, um, because that that pre- presents a, a potential uh, a trigger um, to conflict, um, and and of course, like I said. Plenty of U.S. civilians in, in the Middle East. Plenty of embassies and consulates in the Middle East, and those are always uh, potentially soft targets that can trigger a conflict. But at the same time, we have a uh, we have troops in Syria and Iraq, and and what that allows for is a. A, a even easier target. Um, because there is a difference, of course, even in the mind of Iranian-backed militias, there's a difference between targeting U.S. troops versus targeting an embassy or a consulate or U.S. civilians. And it's much easier for them to target U.S. troops and, 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 and sort of justify that than to target uh, civilian targets. And so we have this tit-for-tat that goes on and the question we have to ask ourselves is what happens when one of those uh, indirect fires uh, gets lucky and kills kills a U.S. soldier? Maybe nothing happens, but maybe 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 it does escalate and it's unclear. And, and then add that um, add into that the fact that we're uh, in an election cycle and the stakes are higher. And so there's these domestic considerations. And so the Biden administration is going to, for domestic political reasons, feel backed into a corner in which they have to respond much more aggressively than perhaps is warranted or or, or perhaps they otherwise would have if if this was happening a year ago. Um, And and it's going to be politicized. Uh, And uh, so, you know, we're going to have the worst of both worlds. We're not going to have a sober debate in Congress where we actually weigh the pros and cons of, of our posture so far as U.S. interests. We're going to have a hyper- politicized debate on cable news. Um, and the only considerations uh, are going to be, well, how does this affect elections? Um, it's not going to actually be how does this affect U.S. interests? So, you know, what I'd say is we are going to have a debate. We're going to have a terrible debate, but we're not going to have a debate in Congress the way it should be uh, in which we really think about what's best for the American people.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm afraid you're you're almost certainly right about that. That that seems uh, to be the way that it goes. Um, th- thinking about the other consequences that this war might have, a lot of the attention regarding regional consequences has been fixed on Iran and its proxies, what they may or may not do, and, and whether that will involve the U.S. in, in direct fighting. Um, the war is also going to have serious effects on U.S.-aligned Arab states. Uh, I'm thinking especially of Jordan, uh, especially if in connection with the war in Gaza, uh, tensions rise in the West Bank and you end up with possibly uh, ethnic cleansing going on in the West Bank, forced transfers of population. Uh, uh, how likely is it that you think that the, an Israeli invasion of Gaza could significantly destabilize Jordan, um, as, as many have feared in the past?
2: Well, it has the potential to destabilize or to present political hardship for any of our our partners in the Middle East, um, because they have to walk this tightrope between their partnership with the United States um, and their uh, détente with uh, Israel. Um, and uh, you know, the Jordanian-Israeli border has been stable for a long time. You can cross back and forth between it. Uh, it you know, it's not it's not totally uncommon for Israeli tourists to go to Jordan uh, and so forth. But uh, we could see a change to that, and we we could see a situation in which, which Arab leaders are forced to take a much harder line towards the U.S. and towards the um, uh, towards the Israelis, uh, the Israeli government, uh, just to appease their own population. We saw mass protests in Jordan uh, that were somewhat reminiscent in their slogans and uh, in their posture than. Uh, to the Arab Spring. Now, I'm not saying that the, the 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 Jordanian government is about to be overthrown. I don't think we're there yet, but they're going to have to make decisions that uh, that uh, reduce tensions with their own people. And of course, Jordan has many Palestinians uh, as as part of their population. So I think our our, our so-called partners in the Middle East um, are in a very difficult uh, position in which they have to walk a tightrope. And the more things escalate, the more that position is going, the more difficult that position is going to be. And of course, it's going to be even harder to de-escalate because the number of countries that can act as mediators is, is very minimal. I mean, Tur- Turkey seems to want to act as a mediator, and Turkey might be in a good position to be a mediator to some degree because for historical reasons, it has a, a certain relationship with uh Israel, it, has a, it doesn't have a very good relationship with Syria, um, but it, it also, Erdogan is seen as at least sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. So for those reasons, perhaps Turkey could, could be a mediator. I, I'm, I'm just not sure how practical that would be. But there's very few countries right now that can be a mediator. Certainly the United States can't be a credible mediator because the United States is seen as being clearly on one side of the conflict so there's very few countries that can that can serve as a mediator that both israel and, and, and the Palestinians in general, let alone Hamas, would accept uh, so we're the pa- the, the pathway uh, the off ramps for for this conflict and the pathway towards diplomacy is very fraught right now and is only going to become more fraught
0: Adam, I wanted to ask you as as a military veteran about the pending invasion of Gaza, and I know uh, things are happening very quickly, but as of right now, Tuesday, there has not been an invasion, but uh, every headline says it's it's pending. What would an invasion, a military invasion of Gaza, given the size, uh, given the, um, obviously, the densely packed urban environment, what would it look like? And has, and I, I I would imagine, you can't compare directly, but that the United States military did uh, operations like that in Iraq, for example, in Fallujah. I know that there were Iraqi operations in, in Mosul with uh, U.S. air support in um, the late 2000s and 2015, 16, I can't remember. What would it look like for people who are just not familiar with, um, the, the military aspect of this?
2: Uh, I mean, it would look brutal. I, I, I haven't experienced urban combat myself. I was in Afghanistan, but, uh, plenty of Marines who I knew personally had experienced, they were the Fallujah generation of Marines or the Ramadi generation. Um, a, a, a little bit, just a little bit older than me, but a couple of years and had experienced that. Um, and I heard stories and it's brutal. And any of the there's plenty of accounts uh, that folks can read about Ramadi and Fallujah and, of course, Mosul and uh, house to house urban combat, high civilian casualties, uh, booby traps, IEDs, um, close quarters combat. Um, It's just brutal. There's there's no place to hide, really. And uh, I think the Israelis would take incredible uh, casualties and, and, and so would Hamas. And then, of course, civilians would as well. And there's that entire tunnel system that Hamas had, which would be incredibly deadly. And, and of course, each day that's passed without the invasion, Hamas has had an opportunity. Granted, they're dealing with very intense airstrikes, but they probably had an opportunity to prepare and harden their defenses. And so I think we'd see very brutal uh, ha- you know, house-to-house cam- combat that lasts weeks or months. And uh, the the casualties on all sides would be staggering. And you, we hear these numbers, something like three hundred thousand reservists that the Israelis have. Okay, most of those reservists are not qualified for urban combat. Yes, Israel has uh, good infantry units and 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 and, uh, and special operations and so forth. But but uh, if it if, if it expands and brings in the reservists, I mean, we that sounds like an overwhelming number. But the reality is that. Israel still has a limited number of of, of uh, soldiers who are qualified to do that kind of combat. Um, so I think it would it, it would simply be devastating. Now, it could have effects on public opinion that are unpredictable. Perhaps if Israel started taking immense casualties uh, among its military, that might once again, rally support for Israel, or or it could go the other way if there's if, if there's horrific images coming out uh, in terms of Palestinian losses, and it's really just unpredictable.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. It I part of me is wondering whether or not Israel is holding off on this invasion because of all of the points that you're making um, about the realities of the urban door-to-door conflict, but the alternative, it seems, would be them just flattening Gaza and using bunker-busting bombs to get at those tunnels. So it doesn't seem like e- like either way we're looking at mass devastation of the Gazan population. If they do go in and invade, that could add to that many Israeli casualties uh, that would open up a whole other um you know avenue for 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 criticism and despair
2: yeah and it's tough because so i mean i think israel probably sees this as a counterinsurgency operation you can conduct counterterrorism from the air you can't really conduct uh, counterinsurgency from the air only you have to have a ground element or if their goal is to dismantle hamas i don't see how you do that without a ground element i think this sor- this overwhelming uh, uh firepower we're seeing from the air they're trying to weaken Hamas as much as possible so that when the ground element does move in, they take less casualties. I think Netanyahu's there's already protests calling for his resignation. Um, he This is another aspect that makes this conflict dangerous. And I'm by no means an expert on Israeli politics. But the reality is that Netanyahu sort of had a rapport with Hamas over the years. He didn't take past opportunities to dismantle Hamas. And I think the obvious reason for that is if he was able to dismantle Hamas, that would be an argument for a two-state solution. I don't think Netanyahu really wanted a two-state solution. He wanted this unsustainable status quo uh, in which there's n- neither a one-state nor a two-state solution, but there's in effect there's an Israeli state, and then the Palestinians don't have really a pathway towards statehood. And I think he thought that was good for him politically, and for uh, his, his, so many of his base supported that. But now the cost of that for him politically is he, he's being blamed for this devastating attack that occurred earlier this month. And in some sense, he must know that his political future is either zero or very much in question. And so now you have a man who's thinking about his legacy uh, and perhaps he wants his legacy to be, well, he's the one who dismantled Hamas. Well, when you have any leader, we've seen this uh, in other conflicts around the world, who's thinking about their legacy first and has a very hawkish cabinet, Uh, That's an incredibly dangerous situation. It could lead to some uh, irrational uh, moves on his part, or I I don't want to say irrational because there's a rationale behind them, but it could lead to some short-sighted moves on his part. Um, but I, I, I think uh, there's probably multiple reasons they've delayed the invasion. One is planning logistically for the invasion itself. One is the regional consideration. And two, perhaps might be some pressure from the Biden administration. And the motivation, the motives for that pressure are, are disputed. Uh, so I think that's why we haven't seen it yet. But I don't see a situation in which we don't see some element of a ground invasion. I think from the Israeli standpoint, especially Netanyahu's cabinet, they have to dismantle Hamas. Uh, and I think they've made that decision already.
0: Well, there's a lot to unpack there, as they say. And I'm, I'm sorry we've run out of time, but I'd really love to have you back, um, particularly as this advances um, and maybe be able to talk a little bit more with you at some point about the uh, regional repercussions. But I did want to direct... Uh, the audience to one of your papers. Um, in the meantime, uh, written by yourself and Stephen Simon, how to withdraw from Iraq within five years. You wrote this back in May, and it can be found on the Quincy Institute website under reports. I feel like it's very important, important. It speaks to a lot of the the uh, issues. Uh, maybe tangential to what we're talking about, but Im- Im- impactful nonetheless and um is it, it anything else you wanna add adam in terms of like things that you're writ- like where your writing can be found or where you want to direct people because I, I i love for for people to understand um that you're you really get a good grasp of your analysis.
2: Well, uh, Stephen Simon and I just had a piece in Foreign Affairs about Iraq. You could just Google Iraq Stephen Simon or Iraq Adam Weinstein and you would find it. Um, But there is one last thing I want to say, which is that we don't know what the regional implications are going to be, except I don't think they're going to be good. Uh, We don't know how this war is going to advance. A lot of predictions that I made today may end up being wrong. But there's one thing I'm certain about. Uh, You talk about these issues being tangential, but the reality is that every decision we've made in the last decade has led us to this moment, including decisions that at the time seemed tangential. I mean, just take leaving the Iran nuclear deal. Devastating. Had we stayed in the JCPOA in the Iran nuclear deal, there would have been an incentive for de-escalation that today does not exist. There would have been an incentive uh, 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 for, you, you know, The the cost of Iran entering this conflict or Hezbollah entering this conflict is far less than it otherwise would have been if uh, Iran had been integrated into the global economy. And so uh, people are going to quite literally die and they already are dying because of that decision. And that's just one example. We can find other examples. Flash diplomacy doesn't necessarily work. It takes years uh, for diplomatic efforts to show a payoff. And unfortunately, uh, we haven't we've had a lot of patience when it comes to military interventions, but we've had very little patience when it comes to letting allowing diplomacy to work.
0: That's very nicely put, Adam. And I'm just so glad that you came on the show to share that with us. And will you come back again?
2: Yeah, of course. I'm always happy to join.
0: Awesome. Take care and thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.